Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Mark Tedeschi, AMQC, has worked as a barrister and Crown Prosecutor on some of Australia's most significant criminal cases. He is the author of three non-fiction titles, Eugenia, Kidnapped and Massacre at Mile Creek. Today I'm talking to Mark Tedeschi about his most recent book, Missing Presumed Dead. The author's proceeds from the publication of Missing Presumed Dead will be donated to Australian charities that assist and support victims of crime, the families of deceased victims, and the relatives of those who have gone missing. Mark Tedeschi, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Now, the missing persons presumed dead in this book fall into a distinct category of missing persons who, as you say, fall outside the conventional categories of risk. Who are you writing about here and why do they fall outside these so-called conventional categories? The two women who disappeared without trace and who are the subject of this book were completely outside the normal range of people who go missing in Australia. So they were not drug addicts, uh, they were not hitchhikers, they were not people who are associated with organised crime. They were not people who engage in hazardous sporting activities. Uh, they were completely outside the spectrum of the people who normally go missing. And neither were they in any way unhappy with their lives, unhappy with their families, unhappy with their friends. They were very successful, happy joyous people with wonderful family lives, extensive friends. It would have to be said that they, they came from a financially secure environment, so they had absolutely no reason at all to voluntarily go missing. And the two people we're talking about are Kerry Whelan and Dorothy Davis, although there is a further um, person involved that comes up later in the book. Um, but... Before that, I'd like to talk about Bruce Burrell. What kind of person was Bruce Burrell? And did he ever fit the profile of a murderer? My knowledge of Bruce Burrell is a little bit biased for two reasons. Firstly, I was the prosecutor at both of his trials. So, I mean, it should be said that I never got to speak to him directly. My um, observations of him are based upon the evidence that was led at his trials and the extensive police investigations that preceded those trials. The second thing that should be said is that I've had many, many decades of prosecuting and defending people accused of serious crime. So I have developed a quite extensive knowledge about some of the people whom I've come across in these cases who I would view as being classic narcissists. And Bruce Borrell was one of them. And um, not everybody who's a narcissist, of course, commits serious crime. There are lots of narcissistic people, people with narcissistic traits, who are leaders of our 
um, corporations and maybe even our leaders in politics and the like. So you can't come to generalisations about all narcissists, but I must say that there are some people, particularly some of those that are prosecuted, who exhibited extreme narcissistic traits, which made them firstly totally lacking in empathy for their victims and the families of their victims. Secondly, made them totally focused on their own needs and wants and holding a belief that their needs and wants gave them almost an entitlement to commit these crimes, to redress what they saw as being the unfair life situation that they were in. But the third and perhaps most amazing feature of these people is that they were completely oblivious to the fact that they were leaving really serious trace evidence behind, leaving serious clues behind that the police could later detect and which we were able to lead in evidence against them. And these people, including Bruce Burrell, left the most incredible pieces of evidence behind for the police to find. And he thought that he was of superior ability and that he could see all the risks that he took in committing these two murders and that he would get away with it because he could foresee the risks and take appropriate measures to avoid them. But the fact of the matter is that he was totally oblivious of the extreme risks that he took in committing both of these crimes. First of all, I want to talk about the nature of the case or the cases uh, described in this book. Both convictions discussed in this book involve evidence that was largely circumstantial. What should we understand about a circumstantial case? Look, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that a circumstantial case is by its nature less convincing than a direct evidence case. A circumstantial case is one where you have individual pieces of evidence that in themselves don't prove guilt. They just prove a particular fact. But when you put them all together, they amount to a very substantial case against an accused person. Um, direct evidence is um, eyewitness evidence or evidence of an accused's admission some direct testimony to link the accused to the commission of offence. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that a direct evidence case is stronger. The reality is that circumstantial cases can be extremely strong, sometimes stronger than direct evidence cases. I mean, for example, you might have a witness who um, purports to see a bank robbery and purports to identify who the bank robber is, but in in a, in a trial, that person might be cross-examined and it might be ascertained that they didn't have their glasses on at the time and they only caught a fleeting glimpse of the robber as they were running away from the scene. That's a case of direct evidence, which might in fact be very weak, whereas you might have a circumstantial evidence case that this person was seen outside the bank every day for the past week looking in to see who was there and that they did some searches on the internet about deliveries by security companies of, of cash to banks and um, evidence that um, 
a fingerprint was left on the on the door of the bank. You know, that 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 amounts to circumstantial evidence that might end up in its totality being very strong. So that's the difference between the two categories of cases. And one of the reasons why I wrote this book is that both these cases were circumstantial cases. And I thought that people would be interested in seeing just how strong a circumstantial case can be. And how does a case involving circumstantial evidence affect the considerations of a jury and also the way you as a Crown prosecutor might put that case to the jury? Well, as a Crown prosecutor, it's really important that you construct a picture in your opening address and you present the jury with that total picture and explain to them how the individual parts fit together. Um, you're not you're not meant to be argumentative in an opening address. You're just describing what the evidence will be and explaining to them in very broad detail how those pieces fit together. But in your closing address to the jury, you're explaining to them why they'd be convinced of the individual pieces of evidence and then precisely how each piece fits together into the total picture. And at the end of the day, there might be some parts of that circumstantial case that they're not convinced of, but that doesn't matter. You can lose some parts of the evidence and still have a very convincing circumstantial case. So you also explain to the jury why it is that the only thing they have to be satisfied of beyond a reasonable doubt are the essential ingredients of the charge against the accused and whether the accused is guilty or not guilty. They don't have to be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt of each individual piece of evidence in a classic circumstantial case. And you actually put quite an interesting analogy to the jury in order to demonstrate that. What, what was that analogy? The analogy that I would often give to a jury, generally in my opening address, is um, doing a jigsaw puzzle. Let's say you've got a jigsaw puzzle all in pieces and you've got the box which shows the complete picture. And the analogy that I give the jury is that the complete picture is the opening address because that's what I'm giving them now. I'm giving them the complete picture. And at the end of the trial, I hope to show them where each individual piece goes, which they may well have worked out for themselves during the course of the evidence because each piece of evidence is like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And once it fits into place, you can see a picture. And I explained to them that at the end of the day, there still might be a few pieces of the jigsaw puzzle missing. That doesn't mean that they can't look at the puzzle that's there, the pieces that are there, and say, oh, I can see that's a picture of Sydney Harbour Bridge. Even though the piece is missing, I can still see that it must be the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, so that's the analogy that I give to a jury about the pieces of a circumstantial case. It must have been effective because the convictions were achieved. <laughs> if we could talk about the legal process for a minute, uh, there was a pre-trial hearing, and in that pre-trial hearing there was the decision taken not to prosecute Bruce Burrell. Now, the trial was eventually resurrected, but there's a process that was involved there. What was that process? But the process was that the officer in charge, he organised for the coroner to hold an inquest into both deaths. Um, the uh, officer in charge was Detective Chief Inspector Dennis Bray. He, he convinced the coroner to hold an inquest into both deaths together 
and Bruce Burrell was called at the inquest and refused to answer any questions, as was his entitlement. However, there was a little bit of extra evidence given in the Kerry Whelan matter that we didn't have before. And by this stage, it had come back to me and I did a report to the Director of Public Prosecutions who directed that the Kerry Whelan trial should be resurrected and should go ahead. At that stage, he also directed for the first time that there was enough evidence in relation to the disappearance of Dorothy Davis and he directed that her trial was to proceed as well. So we then had uh, the charges um, brought into the Supreme Court and on behalf of the prosecution, we made an attempt in front of another Supreme Court judge to have both trials heard together. Now, at that time, normally, to have both trials led together, you would have to have some very substantial connection between the two matters, particularly in a murder trial. You'd have to have some striking similarity or some other feature that linked them together. So what we did is um, I got evidence from the Missing Persons Bureau and I let evidence from them in front of this Supreme Court judge in our application to have both matters dealt with together. And basically the evidence that they gave was this. I asked the officer from the Missing Persons Bureau, how many people went missing in New South Wales in the two years that these two women went missing in 19... 95 and 1997, those two years, three years that we were talking about. And it was some astronomical figure. It was about 60,000 people or something like that. And then I said, well, at the end of that period, how many of those people were still missing? And it was a much, much smaller figure. And then I asked, okay, well, um, how many of those people were still missing bodies never found who were females of mature age from uh, a secure financial background who were not members of the uh, drug com community, they were not drug addicts or dealing in drugs, who were not hitchhikers, who were not disgruntled with their family lives and who, according to the police, had no special reason to go missing? And the answer was two. I said, what are their names? Carrie Wheeler and Dorothy Davis. And to your knowledge, did those two women have anything in common? Oh, the only thing that we know they had in common is that they both knew Bruce Burrell. So we attempted to lead that as, as some extraordinary evidence to link these two trials as uh, what we in, in the law called coincidence evidence. But the judge ruled against us and held that it was not a sufficiently probative connection between the two matters to warrant them being held together. So we had to hold trials separately. And what that meant is that we had to make a decision whose trial to go first. And we decided that the Kerry Whelan trial would go first because we had more evidence in that trial. And secondly, it meant that the judge who held that trial, who was a third Supreme Court judge, issued a, a non-publication order in relation to the first trial so that there was no media attention to that first trial. 
so that it wouldn't prejudice the second trial. So there was no media attention about his conviction in the first one until we got to the end of the second matter. Now, if we can turn to the evidence, and that evidence particularly relating to the Kerry Whelan case, there, you say there were three bodies of evidence used to establish guilt. First of all, what were they? And why was looking at them separately and together and establishing that they were independent of each other important to the Crown's case? Look, it wasn't essential for the jury to look at the three bodies of evidence separately, but my submission to them was that each of those bodies of evidence proved conclusively that Bruce Burrell was responsible for the abduction and murder of Kerry Whelan. And then if they put all three together, it was just overwhelming. The first piece of evidence was that um, Chief Inspector Dennis Bray had gone back to the hotel sometime later and got all of the video recordings from the uh, various cameras, security cameras that were at the hotel. Initially, it was thought that none of them showed anything of any significance because most of them were pointing inside the hotel. But Dennis Bray had another look at these recordings and realised that one of the video cameras, known as Camera 7, although it was outside on the street, it faced inside to a glass door which led to a basement karaoke bar. And what he noticed was that on that particular day, it was a very overcast day, so the lighting was very even, and you could see a reflection like a mirror image in that glass door from that camera of what was happening out on the street behind the camera. And what it showed is that a few seconds after Kerry Whelan was seen on other cameras exiting the car park, of the Park Royal Hotel. Firstly, you could see the top of her head walking towards the road. And then a few seconds later, maybe maybe 20 or 30 seconds later, you could see a car driving out from the parking lane into the middle lane of that street. And it was a very distinctive two-tone two-door Pajero of a certain era with a running board, no roof racks. And when he went back to look at another camera, he could see that very car drawing up the, to the, going past the front door of the hotel. Um, and its back windscreen was visible showing uh, that the windscreen wiper had wiped away dust and dirt from the back windscreen. Now, when they went to, uh, when they went to Bungonia and started observations of Bruce Burrell a couple of weeks later, they took possession of a car that he had in his possession at that time, which he'd stolen from a car yard, which was a two-tone, two-door Pajero of that make, with uh, a running board, no roof racks, and a dirty rear windshield of exactly the same nature as the one that was seen on that camera at the Park Royal Hotel. And they did tests with that very vehicle and other vehicles of different colour to show that that colour, because the, the video cameras were black and white cameras, 
that colour of that vehicle was consistent with the black and white image that was seen on the Pike Royal Hotel cameras. The second part of that evidence was that the police made an enormous search for the drivers and the owners of every single example of that particular vehicle in New South Wales. And they managed to locate almost all of them and exclude them as having been innocently in Phillip Street, Parramatta at the time of Kerry Willen's disappearance. But it it showed um, just how likely it was that it was Bruce Burrell's stolen vehicle that Kerry Whelan had got into. The second part of the case was when the police went to his home on, on this remote property in Bungonia. They found a whole lot of interesting stuff in his homestead. Now, they found two dot point notes and one dot point note could only be explained as an early outline of the kidnapping plan. And the second dot point note could only be described as an early outline of the ransom note which had been received by Kerry Whelan's husband, Bernie, the day after her abduction. So this was very cogent evidence. Now, the ransom note had been typed on a Canon electric typewriter using a... Uh, the, the actual part of the typewriter that made the made the letters on a piece of paper was known as a daisy wheel. It was a wheel that turned around according to which letter you were pressing. The police seized this typewriter and the daisy wheel that was on the, on the typewriter had not been used. Also, uh, ink tape and correction tape that had not been used to type the ransom note. But that particular category of typewriter had been used to type the ransom note. Another note that they found at Bruce Burrell's place was a list which we called a car cleaning list. And it was a list that he'd written in his own handwriting about how he was going to clean a particular car. It didn't say what car. And what it said was uh, something to the effect of uh, passenger side, half an hour. Now, we sought to lead that evidence as proof that well, why would anybody spend half an hour cleaning the passenger side of the vehicle unless they were trying to get rid of any DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence that would implicate them in a crime? But the judge ruled that um, we couldn't say when this note had been written. We couldn't say in relation to which car it had been written. So it was excluded from evidence at the trial. The third piece of evidence was this. Police spent a lot of time at Burrell's property searching for the two bodies in disused mine shafts that dotted his property and the national park that was near his property. They didn't find anything. There was a huge contingent of media people that was camped at Bruce Burrell's um, gate. And, of course, the police had been all over his homestead and all over his property and they were there constantly. And there was an enormous amount of publicity about this. And the publicity very clearly identified Bruce Burrell as the prime and only suspect in the disappearance of Kerry Whelan. So within a matter of 24 hours, Bruce Burrell became you know, public enemy number one in the media. And this placed him under enormous stress. 
Now, on day five, he was so stressed that he decided to do something about it. And he managed to get away from the farmhouse without being followed by any police. And he went to one of his neighbour's properties on a quad bike, asked to borrow his neighbour's car. His neighbour let him use the car. And he went into Goulburn, which was maybe um, half an hour away. In Goulburn, he went very, he went to one telephone booth and made a call. He was very carefully making sure that he wasn't being followed. And then he went to a second telephone booth outside the Empire Hotel in Goulburn and made a phone call to Bernie Whelan's workplace in Smithfield. He spoke to a receptionist and he gave her some coded information that was in the ransom note that only the kidnapper could have known. And he then said, tell Bernie to call off the police and the media. If he wants to see Carrie alive again, he must call off the police. So he thought that he hadn't been observed by any police officers or followed by any police, but he wasn't quite sure about that. So when the police heard about this phone call, they called him in for an interview and he went for the interview. And they asked him, did you make a call to Crown Equipment in Smithfield, where Bernie Whelan worked, on that particular day at that particular time? Now, he would have known that if they had him under observation, if there was a video camera or something like that, and they could prove that he was in that particular phone booth at that particular time, he knew that if he told a lie, that would be very strong evidence against him. So he admitted that he'd been in that phone booth at that time. And we could prove that that call had been made from that phone booth. And he told the lie that he'd been ringing his solicitor, whose office was around the corner, to try and make an appointment to see him. And we could prove that although he'd made a call to his solicitor earlier that day, it was not at that time. So... Only the kidnapper could have made that call. We could prove it was Bruce Burrell who made that call, and that again identified him as the abductor and murderer of Kerry Will. So those very loosely and very briefly were the three bodies of evidence that we had against Bruce Burrell in relation to the murder of Kerry Will. Now, of course, uh, there was no verdict entered in that first trial. Why wasn't there, a, all the evidence seems overwhelming, why wasn't there a verdict entered in that first trial? Um, at that stage, all verdicts in New South Wales had to be unanimous. There was no provision for majority verdicts. The jury was unable to come to a unanimous verdict and they were eventually discharged. And then a number of the jurors went to the media and complained that one of the jurors had refused to discuss the matter further and had um, refused to join them in a verdict and had been uh, irrational in his approach. Uh, that, that was reported in the media and uh, it came to the attention of the Attorney General that this trial had failed to reach a conclusion because of one juror and it was largely because of that particular trial that the the New South Wales Parliament then passed an act to amend the Jury Act so that um, 
majority verdicts were permitted in some circumstances that I won't go into. And of course, that uh, brings us to the idea of a black direction, which comes up in the second trial. What is a black direction and how did it affect the outcome of the second trial? Black direction is a direction from the judge to the jury to the effect that um, whilst maintaining their oaths to decide the case for themselves according to the evidence, whilst being faithful to their oaths, they should listen to the views of others and be uh, flexible in their approach. And, and if they decide that the views of others have merit to give weight to that, um, in those days, it was also the case the jurors would be told that if they couldn't come to a decision, that it may well be that some other jury would have to hear the whole case all over again and come uh, to a decision based upon the same evidence. Um, but in the meantime, the High Court has said that, that shouldn't be included in the back direction. The back direction is really an exhortation to a jury to continue to deliberate and try and reach a unanimous verdict. In the first trial, the jury failed to agree, so we had to run the Kerry Wheeler matter a second time. In the second time, the jury took a long time and were given the black direction and eventually came back with a unanimous verdict. Was it easier to achieve a conviction in the Dorothy Davis case after the Kerry Whelan case? It was quite different in terms of the evidence that was led. In one sense, it was not quite as strong a case, but there was one aspect of it that without which we could not have achieved a conviction, in my view, but it was a critical piece of evidence, but it was terribly important. Dorothy Davis lived just around the block from Bruce Burrell, and she was a very close friend of Bruce Burrell's wife. She had lent $100,000 to Bruce Burrell and was asking for the money back, and Bruce Burrell had spent it and was in no position to pay it back to her. And she had threatened to not only take legal action against him to go to a solicitor and commence proceedings, but also to tell um, his wife that this money had been lent so that Bruce Burrell could buy another house for his wife and him. And I think the threat of shaming him in front of his wife and the threat of taking legal action against him was sufficient to convince him that the only way out for him, because he couldn't repay the money, was to murder her. So somehow or other, he convinced her to go on foot from her place to his place. Now, it wasn't far. It was within her capability to walk. She was, I think, 74 at the time, and she had arthritis, so she was not, um, you know, she was not going to skip and run to his place. But she was certainly capable of walking to his place. And that we say that's what she did. And the reason why is that on that particular day, Dorothy Davis had a workman by the name of Ken Hulse who um, was working on her property. He was doing some work on her veranda. And she came out at around 1 p.m. and said to him, I'm going to a friend's place, and she pointed in the direction of the ocean, which is exactly where Bruce Burrell and his wife lived, and said, I'm going to visit a friend who's had cancer, 
but she and she lost all of her hair because she had chemotherapy, but she's fully recovered. Now we could show that the only person who matched that description in that direction and in that block was Bruce Burrell's wife, who had had very serious cancer, had had treatment, had lost her hair and had fully recovered. His wife was much loved by Dorothy Davis. And the only explanation for what she said to Ken Hulse was that she was going, she thought she was going to visit Bruce Burrell's wife. She left meat defrosting on her sink. She left the house open. So when Ken Hulse had finished for the day, he actually had to lock it up. It wasn't until the next day that a family realised that something seriously had gone wrong um, and her children started a frantic search for her and, of course, they were unable to find her. Now, after her disappearance, um, the police did interview Bruce Burrell. Uh, the reason why is that, unbeknown to Bruce Burrell, Dorothy Davis had told her daughter about this loan. So she immediately thought, well, here's a person who would have some incentive to make my mother disappear, and she told the police. So the police went to interview Bruce Burrell, and he said, oh, I was at work that day. In fact, we had a, a birthday lunch at a restaurant for one of my workmates. The police went and interviewed his workmate, and his workmate said, yeah, we did have a lunch that day, and um, um, so he must have been at work. Now... When Kerry Whelan disappeared two years later and uh, Dennis Bray became involved in the investigation, he was told that Bruce Burrell had been a suspect for the Dorothy Davis disappearance. So he went back and got the telephone records of Bruce Burrell for that day and also the credit card details of the man who'd paid for the lunch at the restaurant that day. And it turned out that the lunch had not been on that day at all. And it turned out that within an hour or two of Dorothy Davis leaving her home, Bruce Burrell had completely unexpectedly made a trip to Bungonia to his property, which took him at least an hour and a half or two hours to get down there, had spent about an hour or so at the property and came straight back to Sydney and we knew that from mobile phone calls that he made to his wife. The following day, he did almost the same. He went down to Bungonia this time for a couple of hours and then came straight back, again, without telling his wife that he was going down there in advance, but ringing her from on the way and on the way back, and we could trace exactly where he'd been and how long it had taken him. So that made... That made his alibi disappear, and it meant that he was now a serious suspect for the disappearance and murder of Dorothy Davis. Now, of course, neither the bodies of Dorothy Davis or Kerry Whelan were ever found, and, and uh, Bruce Burrell was never compelled to tell anybody where those bodies were. Why do you think he, he approached it that way? He was already convicted. There was no advantage, I guess, to him. You know, what I found in all the years that I've been prosecutor and a defence barrister is that if, if someone's convicted of a, a horrid crime like these two and 
they have become the object of odium in the community. If there is one person on the outside, that is, on the outside of their jail, who supports them and who believes in them, then they will maintain their innocence in order to keep that connection with the outside world. And I've seen it many, many times that people against whom there are overwhelming cases will maintain their innocence so as to maintain their credibility with one or two or a few people who still support them on the outside. And I think that was the case with Bruce Burrell, that he had family members who still supported him, which is admirable. And he wanted to maintain his credibility with them. And that's one possibility. The other, because as I said, I've never spoken to him about it. Um, the other possibility is that there may have been another body there in the same location. So he would have been responsible maybe for another death or other deaths. Um, that's pure conjecture. Um, we don't have any cogent evidence of that, although there is a suspicion that he may have been involved in the death of another man before the murders of the two women. You admit in Missing Presumed Dead, you developed a very strong connection with the Whelan family and considerable admiration for the police investigating the case. How difficult is it to maintain objectivity when acting as the Crown Prosecutor when you've established such strong relationships? Look, I, I think I also maintained a very good relationship with the family of Dorothy Davis during the trial. Um, I think it's important as a prosecutor that you have a, an understanding relationship as a professional person with, with the families of the deceased during a trial because you can usher them through the process and help them cope with what must be a terrible ordeal of listening to some of the evidence, perhaps sometimes things that they didn't know, uh, keeping them informed about what's happening and why you're doing things. Um, I, I think it's an important part of a prosecutor's role. I attempted to do that with both the Whelan family and with Dorothy Davis's family. One also naturally feels a degree of sympathy for their suffering. It must be terrible to have a close family member disappear like that and not know where their bodies are. But it's also important as a prosecutor to maintain a degree of objectivity um, so that you don't become too involved with either victims or families of victims because I, I think if you compromise your objectivity, then uh, you're less competent prosecutor. In fact, I think that objectivity is also important to some degree when you're on the defence side. It's I think you're a better defence barrister if you have a healthy scepticism about your client and um, you, you can see how the case is going perhaps better than they can um, and what's likely to happen. So on both sides of the bar table, I think it's important to maintain that objectivity. And I always tried as a prosecutor to, to do. Now, as a final question, the Whelan case brought about some changes to the, the system uh, in the sense that the black direction uh, from a judge could be applied and that a majority verdict was possible. What other 
reforms to the law would you like to see uh, in relation to cases like Kerry Whelan's, Dorothy Davis's? Uh, what other reforms would you like to see in relation to those cases and cases like them? Look, there, there have been some really significant changes since those trials, which was in the early 2000s. Um, for instance, it's now a lot easier to get cases joined up, particularly child sex cases. It's not nearly as hard now to have trials joined together if you have some substantial connection between them. So that's important. Um, I think on the defence side uh, that there's an important reform that should be made. Um, at the moment, the Defence Council is only able to give a very brief and confined address at the beginning of the trial after the prosecutor has done his or her opening address. The defence address is very limited in what the defence counsel can say, and the theory is that the defence counsel can give a more fulsome address at the beginning of the defence case after the Crown has finished. I think that a defence counsel should be allowed to give a full opening address at the beginning of the trial because that way he can inform he or she can inform the jury how the defence structures its case right at the beginning so the jury will understand the defence case more clearly rather than having to wait till all of the Crown evidence is over and uh, what's usually a much shorter defence case begins. So I think that a, a defence barrister should have to make an election that he either does a full opening address at the beginning of the trial or he, he or she does a full opening address at the beginning of the defence case, but not both. So they should have that option. So I think that um, I, I've often found it frustrating as a defence counsel having, having to give a very abbreviated, limited opening address when I feel that I could be of much more assistance to the jury at the beginning of the, the trial, before the evidence is called in the prosecution case. Mark Tedeschi, crime fiction pales in comparison to the stories you've related in this book. It's a truly fascinating account uh, that makes absolutely compelling reading. So thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Mark Tedeschi about his new book, Missing Presumed Dead. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.